I have one thing to say to you. Kiss my fat ass. Hello, fellow mourners of diet culture. Welcome to RIP Diets. We are back, baby. I took the week off and I addressed it on Instagram, but for those of you who don't follow me on Instagram, I had not so good of a week last week and I needed a little time to process some feelings and some emotions that I was having um, prior to coming on the podcast and talking about it. And I don't even know if I'm fully ready to talk about it now, but I'm going to do the best that I can. First of all, I hope that you all had a great 4th of July for those of you living in America. Let's pour one out for all the Instagram boyfriends, Instagram husbands, Instagram girlfriends, wives, partners, moms, dads, sisters, brothers who really put in work yesterday. I went to the beach yesterday with my boyfriend and I made him take about 150 photos of myself. And it's funny, I love posting photos of myself in bathing suits or otherwise on Instagram. I find it to be really empowering. I also enjoy the act of taking ownership of my body and being able to curate photos and look super cute on Instagram and write little captions. I mean, I enjoy it just as much as the rest of us do. But I had a moment yesterday when I was thinking, I wonder if this is harmful what I'm doing. And it's because I sometimes go on Instagram and I see photos of other women and I think, ugh, they look perfect and I look not perfect and I compare myself to them and I don't want to be that for anybody else. To be quite honest, I don't think highly enough of myself that I really truly think anyone's looking at my photos and thinking that I'm the most fabulous person on the planet. But just in case you are, just know that I take 150 photos before I find four or five photos that I actually like and I will actually post. So I did post my beach photos to Instagram and I wrote this long caption about how it's been my experience to go on Instagram and feel less than, but I know how much thought and curation goes into choosing my photos. And then I don't feel so bad because I know that other people are probably doing the same thing. I would love to hear your feedback on that and If seeing other women post their bodies makes you feel bad about your body, I know that it does for me sometimes, but I also think it's a wonderful thing that we have the right to show our bodies as much as we want, to curate it how we want, and to express ourselves freely and express our sexuality, all of that. So yeah, I don't know if that's a complete thought, but I'd love to hear your guys' feedback I'm constantly trying to challenge myself, to challenge the way that I think about things. Somebody challenged me a few episodes back because I was talking about Khloe Kardashian's unedited photo that was released to the public um, that she tried desperately to take down and tried to sue people for posting it to Reddit, all of that. And 
I really stood firmly in the camp of Chloe has the right to post whatever she wants and to edit her photos however she wants and she's a brand and also she probably doesn't feel that good about herself deep inside because the public has ripped her apart and dissected every nook and cranny of her body for so many years so it's no wonder that she is a little anal about how her image is portrayed. Somebody did challenge me about that and said we shouldn't feel an ounce of sympathy for Khloe Kardashian because she promotes things like flat tummy tea that she definitely didn't use to lose weight and is not open about surgeries that she's had and all of this stuff, which I I do still agree with. I do still agree with that. And that's why I think this stuff can be so tricky, right? And I don't want to be on the bad side of things. I don't want to be promoting an unrealistic expectation of what your body should look like at the beach. Um, But I don't really think that's what I'm doing by posting flattering pictures at the beach. I don't know. Guys, slide in my DMs. I am Lubination on Instagram. That's L-U-B-I-N-A-T-I-O-N. You can also follow R.I.P. Diets now that I'm doing plugs at R.I.P. Diets on Instagram. Would love to have you over there. Would love to uh, have you as a part of this little community that we are building over here at RIP Diets. And uh, briefly, before I get into today's conversation, which I loved, by the way, it was with Julie Allen, who is the founder of the Mary Rose Foundation, which provides financial assistance to people who are in need of eating disorder treatment but just cannot afford it truly so important and I can't wait for you guys to hear Julie's personal experience and how it led her to create that foundation but one thing that she spoke about that I related to so much was not wanting to be a hypocrite you know it's so easy for me to come on here and to preach body neutrality And to tell you guys how you should feel about your bodies or how you can have a positive relationship with food and everything else that I talk about. But I don't always feel that way inside. So I end up feeling like a hypocrite when I have a negative thought about my body or if I'm really having strong eating disorder thoughts that day, which I never give into, by the way. Um, And I take my recovery very seriously, but I still have those thoughts. And I'm very open about that. I still have those thoughts. It feels hypocritical to come on here and to tell you guys how to have a positive relationship with your body when I'm having a bad day or a bad few days or a bad week. And I don't feel good about my body. That feels hypocritical. And that's what I was experiencing last week. And I just, I couldn't bring myself to record a show because I felt like I had nothing to say. And that's really hard for me because this is my job and this is my passion. It's my career. It's what I put everything into and not recording a show because I don't feel connected to what I'm saying. That feels shitty. And that feels like, I shouldn't be doing this. But after thinking about it long and hard, I've realized that having those challenges only makes me stronger. Having those negative thoughts and coming to terms with them and being able to fight against them and still enjoy my life, that makes me stronger. And that is something that I feel is very important in recovery, to take those challenges as they come and to not resort to eating disorder behavior. And if you do resort to eating disorder behavior, just being able to forgive yourself and give yourself some grace and to understand that you are human 
And this is a very real thing that you're battling against. This is a mental illness that you are battling against. And even though you can't always see it, especially post-recovery, you know, I, I look very healthy and you can't see it. That doesn't mean that it's not there. So I appreciate all the positive feedback that I get from you guys. And I just appreciate you guys being engaged with me and giving me a reason to move forward and to get through those bad days and to come on here and have something to talk about. It means the world to me. So thank you so much. I might have more that I want to say about how I was feeling last week, but I'll save it for next episode because I'm dying to get into this conversation for today with Julie Allen. This is somebody who lived through an eating disorder as a young person, as a 13-year-old, went into eating disorder treatment and spent the bulk of her teens and early 20s in and out of eating disorder recovery. So if you're going to find that triggering, I would avoid this conversation or maybe fast forward halfway through. But I do think we handled these topics with a lot of sensitivity. And I think she has an interesting perspective, especially as somebody who has a foundation now that helps other women and other young girls recover from their eating disorders the same way that she has. Julie is somebody who truly knows how hard it can be when you're in the depths of an eating disorder and how much it can just take over your life and how hard it can be to readjust to actual life, to post-recovered life. We also talk a little bit about having children and how that shifted her perspective about her body, the challenges that came along with that. So I think, you know, the theme for today's episode really is facing challenges and facing them on an everyday basis and knowing that you are strong enough to overcome those challenges and to maintain a positive, neutral relationship with your body and to be an example for other people who are going through the same thing and struggling with the same thing. So with that being said, I hope you all enjoy this conversation with the one, the only, Julie Allen. You guys, my guest today is a total queen. I'm so excited to speak to her. She is a boutique owner. She is also the founder of the Mary Rose Foundation, which gives financial assistance to people who need eating disorder treatment. That is a huge barrier for so many people being able to afford it. And I can't wait to talk about it more. Julie Allen, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to chat. I'm so excited to have you. I Bear with me because... You are the first guest I've had in a bunch of episodes. I had so many guests and then I've been doing solo episodes. So now I'm excited to collaborate, to talk about body image and eating disorder recovery. I'm curious, what's your history with eating disorder recovery? Yeah. So I um, have had an eating, excuse me, I had an eating disorder for about 15 years growing up. I started, um, with anorexia and bulimia when I was about 13 years old. And from the time I was, you know, 13, 14 to my uh, early mid twenties, I was just in and out of treatment, in and out, in and out, in and out. And it was so expensive. And, you know, I was a kid. I had no idea like what my parents were actually 
going through on the financial side of it. But, you know, later I found out that in order to pay for my treatment, they had to take out a second mortgage on their house. Oh my and gosh. I mean, it is, it's ridiculous how expensive it is. And so whose idea was it? Do you know how the idea came about for you to go into treatment? Was it your doctor? Was it your parents? I had to, uh, I was, it was medically necessary. Um, okay. yeah. So I, I, it, it was not, it was not good. You know, like eating disorders are never a good thing, um, but I had, you know, I was starved to the point of needing medical hospitalization, and that was the that was the pattern for me. I was, you know, I would be okay, and then I would go into treatment, and then I would, you know, gain weight and quote recover, but I never really recovered. And then I would get out of treatment, and I would just lose it all, and it was just this vicious cycle. Like I honestly don't remember most of my teenage years because I was so malnourished and in and out of treatment the whole time oh my god and you must have not been firing on all cylinders too because oh yeah you, know, no. you, you could your brain couldn't have been developing great at that right time. no yeah. not at all yeah. but you know that's interesting that you say that because I do notice a pattern with people I've never been in, in eating disorder recovery I had an eating disorder as a young adult but I was able to address it through cognitive behavioral therapy and do a lot of that stuff on my own. But especially younger girls, you know, a lot of girls need that treatment and they'll go for maybe a month, maybe a few months and they will gain weight, but that's not addressing the problem underneath. And then they simply can't afford it anymore. And I know that that happens. What, what do you think is the solution to that? Honestly, a lot of that is insurance companies. They are viewing recovery from an eating disorder as weight gain. Yeah. Right. And I feel like everybody knows that's not the case. I mean, it should be the case that people don't automatically assume that. But most of the time it is insurance companies picking a person out of treatment way before they are uh, mentally prepared to be out on their own again. And it inevitably, it just cycles around and around and around. I mean, I cycled like that for over 10 years. Wow. And I mean, it's, first of all, mentally incredibly exhausting, but like the damage that I did to my body, you know, it's, I'm pretty sure I haven't seen all the damage yet. And it's just not good. It's not a good cycle. What was that experience like actually being in treatment? What kind of facility were you in? If you don't mind me asking. I don't mind at all. Yeah. No, it was multiple different facilities. Um, The first one I went to was like a a medical hospital and it was connected to a um, eating disorder recovery clinic. But remember, this is like the early, early 2000s and uh, so there was not, there was not many eating disorder recovery centers at that point. So I'm in the Portland, Oregon area and there was one at that point. So it was a medical hospital and it was tied to like a day treatment program and like then um, intensive outpatient and then just simply outpatient, but it was all like one clinic. And there's so much more now. And what actually I found recovery when I was in residential treatment so that was a, you know, like, here's the one hospital and then residential treatment is uh, different, like where you go away to live. And that's where I actually was able to, you know, I was there for three months. That's where I was able to really stop and pause and finally actually start recovering because it was my choice. Okay. And then when you left and you felt like you were in real recovery, 
Did you encounter any obstacles post-treatment that uh, were surprising to you or that you didn't realize were a component? I'm just wondering because when you say, you know, they, they address the medical side of it and the, you know, you need to gain X amount of pounds to be healthy, but not so much everything that's going on mentally and emotionally. Did Was that really hard for you to go back into the real world as I'm assuming you were a young adult at this point and just be expected to live normally after that? Yeah. So the last treatment center that I was in was the residential one. And that was actually up in Canada. Fun fact, because it was much less expensive to uh, go to residential treatment up in Canada. And so that's where I was for three months. And that was my choice to go to. So prior to being at Westwind is the name of the clinic. None of the other treatment centers were my choice. You know, I was, I was um, underage. So it was my parents said, okay, you are X amount underweight. You are putting yourself in danger. Like you are going to the hospital now. Right. And so when I was in my early twenties, I finally made the decision, like I have to get better or I am going to die. Right. And so just having that initial mindset of this is my choice, like I am the one choosing to recover after all of these years, really, you know, that was the groundwork for me. That was that starting, that starting point where I could build and learn how to, you know, live, how to function again. And it was really, really hard because, you know, I was 13 when I had started with the eating disorder. But prior to that, I was 10 when I developed obsessive compulsive disorder, which another fun fact, those are very, um, they go hand in hand. hand in hand. Yeah. So in essence, you know, I hadn't really lived my life since I was 10 years old. And now being in my, at that point, I was in my mid twenties and just having to learn so many different things all over again was really, a, you know, quite fascinating, really. Yeah. And were you um, introduced to intuitive eating? Oh, or do you follow intuitive eating? Is that? Yeah. I love intuitive eating. I do. And when were you introduced to it? That was at Westwind up okay. in Canada. Yep. They, so that's more as a model that they follow there. Like there's a couple of different like approaches to treatment for eating disorders. There's kind of the strictly medical model where you're like, okay, let's put you on a food plan. Let's gain this amount of weight. And, you know, it's very much uh, structured. And then there's the more holistic, intuitive eating um, recovery model. And that's what worked for me. And I, you know, I'm a little bit biased towards that model. That is what I have found works better with people. Um, but I know there's a time and a place for both, both different types of treatment. Oh, yeah, sure. of course. Yeah. I mean, we talk about intuitive eating a lot on this show. I just think, I personally think it's for everybody. I think everybody totally. could benefit from you know, being in touch with their bodies and really being tuned into what your body needs as opposed to, you know, what can I eat to achieve a certain aesthetic? And, you know, of course, when somebody is so severely underweight, I understand why somebody would want to, you know, make sure you have this number of calories and this number of time. But for the long term, I think intuitive eating is just the way that makes the most sense. Um, and you can see that for just based on the way that people are able to sustain it their whole lives, as opposed to a high calorie diet that they may not stick to, or maybe they're eating more than they really want or need. I feel like intuitive eating is, 
is a way that people can kind of like not stress about it anymore, take the pressure off of themselves to make those decisions and just let their body make that decision. For sure. And it's interesting too, because it intuitive eating really like encompasses so many things. And it's like, it's just about tuning into your body and listening to it. And it's, you know, with food and I had, um, I was also kind of obsessed with exercise, right? And so that same principle where it's like, hey, body, what do you need right now? Falls like to me, not only with food, but also with movement. And it's really been a huge, huge shift when I'm just, you know, honestly, just like shut up and listen to my body. Like, what yes. do you need? And then honor that and food, movement, sleep, all of the things, they all kind of go together with that. Yeah, I think it, it all goes along with this trend of particularly with women. I mean, it might happen with men, too, but I notice it more with women is we're just taught not to trust ourselves. We're just taught to um, adhere to all these external rules and the way that we should act or we should be or should look. And we're not really taught to be true to ourselves or follow our own intuition in the same way that men seem to be. I don't know if that's been your experience, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's fascinating, really. It's we're taught not to trust ourselves, that we don't know what we really want and like that we can't be trusted. Like we can't be trusted to feed ourselves with, you know, nourishing food. It's really interesting. Where do you think that um, came from? Where do you think your eating disorder stemmed from? I'm assuming you've thought a lot about it. Yeah. So eating disorders are very complicated in their etiology. And what they found is that it's a combination of biological factors. They're actually quite heritable. And then, you know, psychological factors, like I mentioned, the obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, there's a huge comorbidity. And then, of course, we have the societal factors, which is, you know, our diet obsessed society that teaches women that we are not good enough as we are. So honestly, eating disorders are like a perfect storm, right? You've got the genetic, genetic predisposition, you've got some anxiety, mood disorders kind of hanging out in the mix. And then we all are subject to diet culture, like diet culture is everywhere. And I am so sick of diet culture. And that's kind of another topic. Um, But Uh, I mean, That's a huge topic on this show. Oh, my gosh. I think it's getting to a point. We're at a very interesting point, actually, where people are aware of diet culture, but it still exists everywhere. And we're still, you know, complicit in it in a way. Um, And, you know, there's a huge anti-diet movement going on, which I consider myself very much a part of. But it still seems to be like the status quo, even though people are aware of it and people may know that okay, maybe this is manipulative and maybe this is not real, but we still like at this point, I think we're this far in and how do we dig ourselves out of it? I mean, it's been going on for as long as I've, you know, my, my mom, you know, was always on a diet. Her mom was always on a diet and, you know, I don't have family alive that goes back farther than that. So I can't really ask them. But it's been a generational thing. And uh, like we've just watched over and over like the women that we look up to in our lives, like not think that their bodies are okay the way they are. Yeah. And so 
it's yeah. so funny. I, I rented out this book from the library when I was like 12 or 13. And it was like a book of what all the old Hollywood movie stars ate. And it was published like in the 50s, probably. Yeah. And I remember this page was about what Marilyn Monroe ate. And it was so funny to me how it was a lot of it was foods that you know at the time in the 90s slash early 2000s were considered like you don't eat that like mm. potatoes and like other other food and uh you know meats and foods that are high fat mm-hmm. where at the time like that wasn't really a thing we were all about right. non-fat right and I just right. found it very interesting how People were writing diet books back then, and they said completely different things. They're yeah. writing diet books now, and they say completely different things. Nobody really seems to know the right way, and yet people still reject this idea that, like, you can just eat what you want. You can just eat according to what you're craving. That seems crazy to people, but it doesn't seem crazy to follow this arbitrary list of rules written by somebody who's been influenced by what they grew up with and what is trendy at the time and so on. When you put it like that, it's really kind of, I mean, funny in a not funny way at all. It's like, yeah. so there's no way we can actually just eat what our body wants. Like, right. it's just, yeah, it's funny, but not funny. I think that's right. Way to put that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's a lot of my show is funny, but not funny. Yeah. It's like actually kind of sad. But yeah. a little, yeah, yeah. It's, it's dark. It's definitely dark. I, I get depressed about it, too, because sometimes it just seems like, oh, this is the way that it's always going to be and it's never going to be. But then I think about how much hope I have for the next generation because so many more people are aware of how toxic diet culture is now that hopefully we can teach our children not to feel that way around food. And it's interesting. I, I was reading a little bit about the Mary Rose Foundation, and there was a, uh, an excerpt on your website that I thought was really interesting. So you're ta- you were talking about how exactly as you said, eating disorders are very complicated, and they can come from a combination of all of these different origins. Um, it says, we cannot control the genetic predisposition but we can have an effect on raising confident, empowered young women. The Mary Rose Foundation now has a large education and prevention component as well. We hope to empower young girls to love themselves, develop healthy coping skills, and positive relationships and boundaries. I'm just, I'm curious about how you do this and what the education program actually looks like. Yeah, well, COVID really threw a wrench in it. (laughs) I'll start off by saying that way. Um, So we are going into schools. We are developing an after-school program for middle school aged um, humans. I I say girls, but it's really for anybody that needs it. We're all subject to diet culture. It just seems to impact um, female identifying people more than um, male identifying people. Um, So yeah, we are working on developing our after-school programs right now. So we were... Supposed to be doing it last year, but school wasn't in session in Portland, Oregon. Um, so this year in September is when our programs are supposed to be heading into local schools. I see. I see. Yes. And how how do you plan to work on these particular skills, like co- coping mechanisms, for example, or dealing with your emotions without turning to food? 
how do you kind of plan to address that? I'm curious. So we have a really fabulous board of directors for the foundation. We have a um, licensed therapist on the board that is really kind of our sounding sounding board with it, right? She specializes in working with youth with eating disorders and other um, other disorders that kind of go along with it. So whenever we are getting ready to implement something on the education side of it, we always will we always run it through the entire board of course but specifically to our one um, therapist on the board to make sure that okay what are we you know what's our goal what are we trying to do we're trying to empower these young human beings to love and accept themselves as they are to hopefully prevent eating disorders addiction substance abuse all those things that kind of stem from you know not having that level of confidence in yourself so what we're trying to do is address all of that before it becomes an eating disorder or promiscuity like any of the issues that our later kids seem to be having and so we're really targeting that middle school age because that is such a pivotal time especially for females like I mean, usually when you ask somebody what was the most traumatic time in your life, their answer is middle school. Middle school. It's not fun for anybody. Nobody is fun for. And knowing that and knowing that it is such a pivotal time for these young young humans, um, we're really trying hard to develop these programs, these after school programs that are going to give these kids a sense of belonging, that are going to teach them practical ways to cope with life and to just be aware of the diet culture influences everywhere. And hopefully they can start to recognize, recognize some of those things, recognize, you know, more of the bullying, recognize all that, and then provide them with tangible tools to deal with all that. That's so, so wonderful. That's, that's the hope. And like I said, it was supposed to be last year, but COVID, so we messed are everything up for messed us. a lot of things up. But do you we're have very kids? excited. I do. I do have you? a four-year-old son and a one-year-old son, and then my stepdaughter is 10. Oh, so wow. Okay. That's fun. Yes. Yeah. Wow. You probably can't take them all to the same movie. <laughs> no. <laughs> you, we my don't go to the movies, three. yes. Yeah. <laughs> my, my mom has three kids I'm one of three and we're all very different ages and she always said taking you to the movies was a a nightmare but (laughs) yeah I don't even try like I'm not I'm not even gonna try my one-year-old are you kidding he would like be climbing and eating the the floor can't even yeah a (laughs) hundred percent yeah I'm curious do, do you implement anything specific um or do you raise them as intuitive eaters how do you go about dinner time or eating with your children so a big thing that we do in our house is not labeling food as good and bad like I hear that all the time right like I'm being so good I ate a salad mm-hmm. I'm gonna be so bad or I I was I was so bad I ate the fries or you know whatever is just this common mainstream narrative that ascribing all of us morals say. right to the way you eat right and so we do not do that in our house like it's I will not say a food is good. I will not say a food is bad. You know, we'll say nourishing food. Like if, you know, if if I'm referring to something that's going to give their body nourishment, more energy, like we'll call it energy food, nourishing food. And then 
like fun food, right? Like Mm -hmm. just, it's that simple narrative change. And again, this applies more to my four-year-old than um, my 10-year-old, but it's all develop, you know, development, developmentally appropriate is how I try and word what we're talking about. And we don't talk about our bodies. Um, Well, I don't, excuse me, I should say, I don't talk negatively about my body in front of my children. Like my kids will not catch me saying I feel X, Y, or Z about my body because that, that modeling. And like, to me, you know, my mom, it was always the most beautiful person in the world to me. Right. And I would hear her call herself fat over and over and over. And like, I remember that being hard for me as a kid. So I never want my kids to experience that same thing. Right. So we're very body neutral and just don't talk about good and bad food in that way, you know? Yeah. This is something that I find to be tricky. I don't have any kids, but I hope to someday have a kid. And it's one thing is I see with my friends who are parents, my sister's a parent, I see how hard it is to get them to eat anything. And, you know, kids can be so picky or, you know, they want to have dessert before the meal or they want to. And I personally don't quite know how I would go about that, like, let's say they don't want to eat their broccoli and salmon. They want to eat ice cream. And you say, okay, we're going to have ice cream after dinner. But they, I don't know really from an intuitive eater's perspective how I would go about that. And I'm curious about how people do, how people practice that who are intuitive eaters. Yeah, that is very, very complicated because my four-year-old would only eat chicken nuggets if I let him right like I mean this kid would be a chicken nugget if he could (laughs) like I mean breakfast lunch dinner what do you nuggies chicken nuggies he calls them nuggies really good yeah (laughs) I love them I know I think everybody does um but it is a really it's really hard because I've tried before to like okay well we're gonna have all the food out at dinner and you know listen to your body take what your body needs and the kid will only grab chicken nuggets and you know chocolate and so it's I try not to make a big deal about it but like okay bud you need to eat need to eat two bites of your salad and then you can have this. And I don't know if that's the right thing to do or not, but it, it's working for my family right now. And there's a part of me that's like, Ooh, I we really don't want to be like, you need to eat this in order to get right. this. So it's a, it's a very fine line. And honestly, I have no idea if I'm doing it right. Yeah. I, that yeah. just, it seemed, that seems to be very, confusing especially for my my sister in particular who has a six-year-old and a two-year-old because just that particular age and you have a four-year-old so you know like that particular age is so picky and they want to do things their way and they're not so aware of how things make them feel until they make them feel terrible you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And we've had that time with Everett too. Everett's my four-year-old. Sorry. Um, you know, we were at a little family thing a while ago and I, you know, I don't care. Go ahead. Eat, eat your cookies, whatever. And, but he ate so many cookies. He got sick on the drive home. Oh. And so, yeah, it's not, was not fun. Um, but there's always that line. It's like, how do you, how do you do that to where you're not discouraging things? It's just, you know, I, I try and tell him, I was like, okay, what did your, what did your body say? Like when you right. ate, when you ate 20 cookies, what did your body say to that? 
Right, and then next time you could remind him, you know, right. remember what happened when you yeah. ate the entire sleeve of cookies. That's what yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. Do you think becoming a mom shifted your perspective at all about the way you eat or the fuel that you need for your body? Because I've heard a lot of women say that um, that having children shifted their perception of their bodies. Honestly, pregnancy and postpartum were really hard for me. Um, like really, really hard because just having had an eating disorder for so long and that, you know, hyper control of what I want my body to not only look like, but like be able to do. Yeah. And pregnancy, I had tough pregnancies or at least my last one was really tough and it was during a pandemic. So that was probably why it was so tough. Oh, right. Mm. You're one year old. I didn't even do that math. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it was a, it was tough, but all that to say, it's like you have zero control of what your body is going to do. And that was really, really hard for me. Um, pregnancy and, and postpartum, like it was, it was tough. It, it was really, really hard. So I had to be very, very mindful and aware to not slip back into old eating disorder patterns, especially after, after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that being very challenging. What do you do when you feel, because I'm sure that you still have moments where you slip back into a negative frame of thinking. What do you do to empower yourself to keep going and not slip back into disordered eating or slip back even to that negative mindset that you used to have? Yeah. So now it's the business that I have is the clothing boutique that really focuses on self-love and body, you know, celebrating all humans in all bodies. And I do a lot of work with the foundation as well. And sometimes it just comes down to, I cannot be a hypocrite. Like I cannot preach all of these things about loving and accepting myself as it, as I am and all that stuff. Like you can have bad days. Trust me. That's totally, totally normal. But when it becomes pattern, then that's where, that's where the line is, right? Like your, your pattern of it. And so sometimes I'm like, I just don't want to be a hypocrite. And so focusing all of my, you know, a lot of my energy and effort onto the on the foundation and really trying to do do the work it's it's helpful to keep me accountable accountable yeah Yeah, and I'm sure that the more work you put into it the more it reinforces that idea of like oh yeah this is why I'm doing this right yeah Yeah. and I do actually believe it yeah yeah I, I I'm relating to you so hard right now it's insane because sometimes I'll come on here and I'll be like hey guys just letting you know, I really didn't have that good of a week and this is why. Yeah. And but but just hearing from people that feel like they're being helped and they're moving in a positive direction. It's very affirming and very yeah. it, it makes you feel like, oh, not only am I doing this for me, but I'm also doing this for other people who I could potentially help. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's been incredibly helpful to me to like get out of my own head you know, like just, it's not all about me. It's not all about me. I know. Shocking. And to just get out of my head and, you know, focus my energy on doing, doing work as a, on a, you know, larger 
a larger scale. scale. Yeah. yeah, sure. Um, well, we got to wrap up the show, but is there anything that you want to share either about the foundation or your other work that you didn't have a chance to? Yeah, um, I would love people to check out our uh, Mary Rose Mary Rose Boutique. It's just maryroseboutique.com. We are size inclusive and we really promote sustainability and social justice and all of those things that kind of go along with it. And we're actually working on developing our own line of sustainable clothing in size inclusive, um, size inclusive line pieces excuse me Um, because (laughs) that does not exist hardly at all is the ethical ethically made clothing in extended sizing which is Uh, diet culture so a hundred percent and I've talked about this ad nauseum probably for the listeners but it's very frustrating when people say you know oh you should be shopping sustainably oh you should be thrifting or you should be reusing but not everybody is able to do that because not, they exist. don't have access to it um, if they are above a certain size. So yep. that is so, that's such great information. I'll definitely link it in the show notes so you guys can check it out. Um, and where can people follow you? Instagram's the best place for us. Uh, it's just maryrose.boutique. And Wonderful. you'll find us there. Awesome. Well, it was so great talking to you. Thank you, you so too. much for Thank coming Thank you, on. Emily. All right, all right, all right. That was today's conversation with Julie Allen. Apologies for the wonky audio. This was a Zoom interview, and so the audio was not as perfect as I would have liked. But I'm still happy if you made it through and you heard the full conversation. Would love to hear your guys' feedback. So again, you can DM me on Instagram or you can email me at ripdiets at gmail.com. And finally, you guys, if you want even more content, go to patreon.com slash ripdiets. For $6.99 a month, you can see bonus episodes, videos, vlogs, so much more content than I release every week on this podcast and overall a more intimate look at my recovery and my life as a 30-year-old woman living the body neutral lifestyle in New York City, baby. If that sounds interesting to you, again, go to patreon.com slash RIP diets. And guys, just a friendly reminder, there will be two more episodes in this season of RIP diets. After that, I will be taking a brief hiatus to plan for season three and then hopefully I will come back even stronger and with even more to say to you guys. Peace, love, RIP diets. (laughs) 